scripture today is Psalm chapter 3. I'm sorry that this isn't working. I'll just move it down here. I'll try to project if I, if I start whispering or to say, talk louder, and I'll do it. Uh, Psalm chapter 3. It's up on the screen. You can follow along in the Bible. Hear the word of God. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the life of faith includes enemies. And the Psalms are just really uh, realistic about it. The, the psalmists have their eyes wide open to the reality that all is not sweetness and light when it comes to walking with God. The life of faith, it puts us into a conflict. And if you think about it, this makes a difference for how we live, how, how we go about our life and our work. I mean, imagine, for example, that we were all given a big building project to complete. And, and so our boss gives us the blueprints, and, and we all have different jobs to do. Some of us are masons, and some of us are carpenters, and uh, some of us are electricians and plumbers, and some of us are, in fact, painters. And, and so the boss sends us out to do this work. You think, okay, that's all fine and good. We might even be whistling, like the, like the dwarves in Snow White, just whistling joyfully as we go to work. But now, what if, just before the boss sends us out, he has this. Oh, by the way, this building project that you're undertaking, uh, it's happening in a war zone in enemy-occupied territory. And so while you're doing your work, you can expect that you will be uh, regularly under attack, and there will be enemies who are trying to um, stop you, and trying to destroy the work you've done, and even trying to destroy you. Now, we would probably think, if our boss told us that, well, that's an important piece of information. <laughs> that, that's, that's, a, that's a good safety tip. I mean, that's the kind of info that might lead us to approach our work differently than if we thought we were just out there building in a, in a peaceful zone. Psalm 3 reminds us that the people of God live in a particular context, and the context is opposition. The context is that we are surrounded by foes. And, and lest you think that this is just an Old Testament reality, you might recall that Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he said, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Well, he didn't say, I'm sending you out as sheep among butterflies and puppy dogs. Uh, no, that, we wish. We wish we had said that. But no, it's, he's sending us out as sheep among wolves. And you all know this. I mean, raise your hand if you've never been opposed. If you've, if you've lived a struggle-free life, if your life has never felt like you're in the middle of a war zone, if you're in the middle of a profound conflict. No. Uh, all of us 
are aware of some kind of struggle and conflict in life. We're aware of just this reality of being opposed. You know, often we frame that conflict and that struggle as the big problem that the Christian faith is meant to overcome. We think life shouldn't be filled with so much struggle, so much conflict. Life shouldn't feel like a fight, especially if we're Christians, right? I mean, didn't Jesus say that uh, he, that we can like come to him and rest and that his, his uh, burden is light? And doesn't scripture talk about like this deep peace that Jesus brings that passes all understanding? Doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, Jesus did say that. And at the same time, our enemies abound. And life is so often chaotic and tumultuous and full of trouble. And so what this psalm shows us is how David responded to this reality of being surrounded by enemies. How did David respond to this reality and how can we? That's what I want us to look at. And I just want to walk through the psalm with you together, and I'll highlight six points. <laughs> One of those. Okay, first, David recognizes the threat. Look again at verse 1 and 2. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. See, uh, he doesn't stick his head in the sand and deny that he has enemies. No, he sees that he does have enemies, and he acknowledges that reality before God in prayer. But more than that, David shares an insight about the nature of the threat that these enemies pose. He says, many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I think that's significant. I mean, it's, it's like the enemies call into question the promise of God's salvation. It's like maybe that's what all enemies do at some level. And so it's like David is showing us that whatever form the external threat from enemies takes, there's always this internal threat that comes along with it. Um, God's goodness and God's trustworthiness are called into question. If you think about it, this is how it's been from the very beginning. When that snake shows up in the garden and basically asks, is God really for you? Is God really committed to caring for you? Will God really give you what you need. Is God really trustworthy? Is God really good? Or could it be, the snake says, that there is no salvation for you with God? See, that's the threat that the enemies bring. Family, I wonder what foes you're facing today. As I prayed through the Psalms, I found it helpful to remember that in some ways, the New Testament really um, reframes how we think about who our true enemies are. You know, um, too often, I'll think that my enemy some days is living, or, or my boys, or uh, the political party with the, the candidate and the policies that I dislike, or the people uh, in our church with the questionable theology. And I wonder if you do that too. Like, isn't it so easy for us to think that, like, we are the enemy of one another, or that those people out there are the enemies? But in Ephesians, you remember what Paul tells us. I think Allison brought this up last week in our prayer time. Um, Paul tells us that our real enemies are not human, but they're demonic. <laughs> that our true fight is against supernatural evil. He writes, For we did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And, and sometimes those, those powers that be do come at us through other people, but often it's through all kinds of other realities like anxiety and depression and loneliness and cancer and unemployment and chronic pain and financial debt, broken relationships, injustice, betrayal. I mean, the list could go on and on. All of these dark realities that um, these spiritual powers of darkness leverage for their purposes. I mean, we have no trouble saying that they did. How many are our foes? And they all whisper to our souls, God is not really for you. God doesn't really love you. God isn't really good. There is no salvation for you. Family, when you hear that those messages, when you hear that whisper, you can be sure that there's an enemy on the other side of it. An enemy is whispering that to you. David recognizes the threat. It's the first thing we see. And we're invited to, to do the same. Not to stick our heads in the sand, not to pretend like it's all butterflies and puppy dogs, but to realize that no, there are real enemies and they abound. They are numerous. Okay, next. David remembers God's faithfulness. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So what is he doing here? He's calling to mind who God is, and he's remembering how God has rescued him in the past. And we don't get details here, but... Uh, you might notice in your Bible, if, you're, if you look at it later, if you look at Psalm 3, you'll see that it's, that it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And, and I imagine that as David is fleeing from Absalom, his son, he remembers another time in his life when he was having to run for, for his life from his father-in-law, Saul, King Saul. And he remembers how the Lord protected him then, saw him through that trouble, answered his cries for help. And now he's recalling that. He's remembering, yes, the Lord is a shield about me. The Lord is the one who lives in my head. And so family, as we face attacks from enemies, we can call to mind examples and experiences of God's deliverance in the past. Um, I'm doing this in a really little way right now and have been for the past couple of months. I mean, a lot of you know that um, Libby's work wrapped up on Friday. And, and we just have no idea like what she's going to do in the next few months. And I've been amazed at like how, um, how wimpy my faith has been and how easy I've turned to worrying and anxiety and fretting uh, as if the Lord isn't going to take care of us, as if the Lord ha hasn't always, like 100% of the time, provided for our every need. Mm -hmm. And yet I still, I still look at the, um, like, the, what? Well, the unemployment ahead, and I think, oh, what are we going to do? It's just like, let's recall the Lord's faithfulness. Like, I can think of exactly zero times that God hasn't provided. He is a shield about us. He's a God who responds to the cries of his people. And so that's the second thing David does, and that we're invited to do. We're invited to remember God's faithfulness. Third, David rests in God's care. Oh, by the way, I need to all of this start with R to help you. <laughs> uh, he rests in God's care. 
I love this. Not just because I love to sleep. Uh, David is surrounded by enemies. How many are my foes? How many are rising up against me? But then he remembers God's faithfulness, and what does he do? He goes to sleep. I lay down and slept. I woke again, but the Lord sustained me. I mean, what kind of person can go to sleep when they are surrounded by enemies? What kind of, um, like, what kind of person does that? It's the kind of person who is just extremely confident that someone else is going to take care of them. Babies can. Uh, the kind of person who knows that his life is entirely in God's hands. And so David is so secure in God's sustaining care that he is able to really rest. I mean, he is able to sleep because he knows that his life is not his own. He belongs to God and he knows that he knows that deliverance from his enemies is not ultimately going to be his own doing. It's not going to be the kind of thing that he works out for himself. God will be the one to do it. And that frees David to rest, to go to sleep. Um, well, this, is, this is a big part of what's behind so much of um, Sabbath theology. There's just such a profound confidence in God's goodness and in God's gracious, sustaining care that God's people can actually begin by sleeping, by doing nothing. We're not going to be the ones to rescue ourselves in the world. And because that's true, we can sleep. We can really rest. You know, this is the, the deep confidence that finds expression in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, that old Reformed Catechism that was meant to teach people theology. And we, we've talked about this before, but you remember the question is, what is your only comfort in life? And in that, what's your only And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. And so, I'll have some words with God someday. Not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. See, people who believe that can rest. That our only comfort in life and in death is not that life will go well for us, not that we won't have enemies, not that we'll never get sick or experience even horrendous evil, not that we'll die peaceful deaths. Our comfort is that we belong to Jesus Christ. He is committed to saving us, and he can do that without our help. And so we can rest even when we're surrounded by foes. So family, there's this invitation for us to rest in God's care. Rest in God's care. Now, closely related to this, and we've already been praying about this and sharing scriptures about this, um, we can join David in resisting fear. That's the fourth part of his response, verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Which is a crazy thing to say, like on the face of it. 
that here's one guy surrounded by thousands of enemies, and he says, I'm not going to be afraid. Like, if God is for him, I think David reasoned, it really doesn't matter how many others are against him. There's just no need for fear. And here we see him expressing his, his intention not to live on the basis of fear. So, David resists fear. What about you? What about me? Um, I didn't read this out uh, when Kelly invited us to, but I, I want to give you two passages for you to check out later that have been for me a great help in, um, in resisting fear, just kind of remembering who I am, remembering my real identity in Jesus Christ. Um, Romans 6 is one place for you to check out. And then Romans, th uh, sorry, Colossians 3 is another place for you to check out. Like, raise your hand if you've been baptized. A lot of you have been baptized. Most of you have been baptized. And you remember what Paul says in Romans 6? He says that um, those of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Jesus' death. And he says something similar in Colossians chapter 3. He says that you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I... I find that so comforting because, like, what do people who have already died need to fear? Fear nothing at all. Nothing at all. I mean, people who have already died don't need to be afraid of anything. So we can join David in, in resisting fear. Um, so, uh, just review where we've been. Recognize the threat. Remember God's faithfulness. Rest in God's care. Resist fear. And then the next thing we see David do in verse 7, he requests rescue. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. This is a cry for God to take action, to rescue David from his enemies. Like, God is not only a defense, he's not just a shield about us, um, he's not only the one who sustains us even while we sleep, he's also the one who will fight for us and who will rescue us from our foes. And so David's prayer here uh, is really raw. It's really unfiltered. He wants God to go out as a mighty warrior and silence the lies of the enemies by hitting them right in the face. Punch them on the cheek. Break their teeth. You know, it's hard for an enemy to whisper lies to you when their face is busted up. <laughs> and, and family, one thing I think we need to see here is that the Psalms give us freedom to pray like that. To pray who we really are, even when who we really are is people who want God to dish out violent vengeance. David is crying out for rescue, and the way he envisions it is God striking his enemies in the face, striking them down, and, and we're free to request rescue like that. But last, David rejoices in God's salvation. Verse 8, he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And as soon as we move here with David, I think what we see is that we're also free to pray for our enemies differently. Because salvation does belong to the Lord. It's not something that we plan and orchestrate. 
it's his work from beginning to end. And, and he can work his rescue however he wants to do it. And, and so how does he choose to do it? How has he actually done it? By becoming one of us? A human being? Weak and vulnerable? He enters into our reality and he becomes one who is himself surrounded by him. Like how many are his foes? How many are the foes of Jesus? The Romans wanted to kill him. The religious leaders wanted to kill him. The conservatives wanted him dead, and so did the liberals. At the end, everyone is calling out for his crucifixion, and had we been in that crowd, we would have joined in that chant. How does Jesus respond to his enemies? See, not by striking but by being struck. Not by dishing out vengeance, but by receiving it on his own body, in his own person. <laughs> and at the end, when he's dying on the cross, we hear him pray a psalm, but aren't you glad it's not Psalm 3 verse 7? Like he doesn't cry out for God to strike his enemies and break their teeth. Instead, he asks his Father to forgive us. How does God work salvation? How does he rescue us? Um, like he saves us through the work of humble, self-giving love. He saves us by laying down his life for his enemies, for you and for me. I mean, at the heart of our faith is a God who loves his enemies even to the point of becoming a human being and dying for them. And, and see, family, this opens up a new way for us to live and to pray. Like we are free. We really are free to pray our hatred. But we're also free to let God transform our hatred into love. On, on the evening of uh, January 30th, 1956, this was a couple of months after the Montgomery bus boycott had begun, the home of Dr. King was bombed while his wife Coretta and his seven-week-old daughter Yolanda and the neighbor were inside. And Dr. King was speaking at a large meeting that evening, and when he learned about the bombing, he rushed home, and when he arrived, he found that this large crowd had gathered outside, several hundred people, some of them were carrying sticks and knives and guns, and they were prepared to take action. Here's how Greg Thompson describes the scene. I'll just read this. He says, outside the home, the angry crowd encountered a barricade of white policemen. This did not improve the mood. Just weeks earlier, the Montgomery City Commissioner in charge of the police, named Clyde Sellers, had publicly joined the White Citizens Council, a move that had effectively turned the Montgomery Police Force into an arm of the White Citizens Council. In the minds of those in the crowd, the policemen behind the barricades were themselves the perpetrators of the crime. Some stared at the barricade in silence. Others shouted angrily at the police and still others began to agitate for violent confrontation. The bomb thrown onto the front porch had destroyed the front of the home. The porch steps and much of the supporting brickwork were gone. The white wood of the ceiling and walls hung down in broken shards, and the black frame of the front door gave <coughs> As King made his way through the crowd and inside the room, he found reporters, the fire chief, 
and commissioner sellers gathered in the wreckage of the front room. They gestured toward the back room where he found Coretta and baby Yolanda, shaken but mercifully unhurt, surrounded by members of his own Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. They greeted one another in relief, checked one another over tenderly, and offered a brief prayer of thanks in the midst of the ruins. Meanwhile, the scene outside grew increasingly volatile as the crowd demanded to know the condition of the King family. As violent conflict grew imminent, King stepped out into the night, stood on the shattered porch, and in view of them all, raised his hands to speak. You can, you can find a picture of this moment, and it's, I wish I had got it to put up on the screen, but it's just, it's, it's Dr. King um, standing there, and he's got, um, he's got these three big white guys just facing him on the porch, glaring at him, and one of them is, uh, one of them is Sellers. And, and so King has like this decision to make. Like he's got several hundred people who have his back with weapons. And he steps out on the porch and he says this. Everything is all right. Don't get panicky. <coughs> Don't get your weapons. If you have weapons, take them home. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what Jesus said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. You think just like, what an extraordinary moment. I mean, Dr. King was caring for his friends in that moment by reminding them of the teaching of Jesus, but he was also caring for his enemies. I mean, he was actually saving their lives. When retaliation was the most natural move, like he chose to go the way of Jesus. And, and so you see, family, we are free to pray our hate if we need to. But we're not to live out our hatred. Like the gospel frees us to follow the way of Jesus. We're challenged to have like, our moral imaginations profoundly transformed by the crucified love of God. On the cross, um, that's what we see happening. We see God, um, who is way wiser than any of us, dying for his enemies. And we still think that wisdom is to kill our enemies. Um, he dies for his enemies, and, and in doing that, he, he's providing this like profound model for us to follow. He shows us how we might lay down our own lives for others. Um, but is that all? Is it just a model for us to follow? Is it just a lofty example? Jesus loved his enemies, go and do likewise. It's not merely that, it's so much more. Because it really is rescue. It really is rescue. Because there in his death and resurrection, um, Jesus is defeating our real enemies. You know, all the, all the Jewish people of Jesus' day, you remember this, who did they think the enemies were? The Romans. Yeah, the Roman oppressors. And, and so, what they wanted more than anything was a Messiah to come, like a mighty warrior, and to raise an army, and to lead a rebellion, and to liberate God's people once and for all. And, and, and Jesus does come, but he just sets his sight on 
bigger enemies, worse enemies, bigger and badder, like the true enemies, the dark destructive realities of sin and death and the devil. And he works rescue from these bigger, badder enemies. He doesn't rescue us in a way that allows us to really bypass any of them. I mean, he, he doesn't lead us on a detour around the hard stuff. The devil is still going to mess with you. Me too. <laughs> and we'll continue to struggle against sin until the day we die. Um, at least so it seems. And we will die. But family, those foes have already fallen. They've already been defeated in a really decisive way. And none of them gets the last word. Sin, death, and the devil already defeated. None of them gets the last word. And so we can declare with David, you, O Lord, are a shield of God. My glory and the lifter of my head. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people.